Hey everyone, welcome back to the Not Just Politics podcast. The following is a conversation with Dr. Chris Brusalis. He is the president of Point Park University. We sat down to talk about his journey to Point Park and his plans for the future of the university. He's a very busy guy and he was able to sit down with us, gave us his time. I'm very grateful for him and I appreciate his perspective. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, are we ready? We're good? All right, Dr. Brusalis, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you give people uh, just a little introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am the president of Point Park University, and uh, I'm almost one year into this position. Prior to that, I was on the board of trustees at Point Park and the leadership of the board. And uh, <clears throat> prior to that, my career, I was the longtime president and CEO of a uh, national management consulting firm called the Hill Group, and then uh, and then the later years chairman of that of that firm. And um, so you've spent you spent most of your time. Uh, in the world of business, That's yes, sort of been your main focus. So, and you have you do have your doctorate, mm-hmm. and so you, where where'd you study? Where'd you uh, set up? Uh, graduate school at University of Illinois and okay. Northeastern University. Okay, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. And so, um, <clears throat> what's that? What's that been like? Because I've always known that there's a certain kind of personality that is good for business. And uh, my brother has one of those personalities. My brother's like an entrepreneurial guy. Okay. He kind of has the business side of things figured out. I'm not so much like that. But what do you think are like the number one, like what are the top qualities in a person that would need to succeed in business? So let me, let me maybe start by talking about my profession as a management consultant and then kind of talk about business overall. I think one of the most important characteristics or competencies in my profession is to have intellectual curiosity, to, to wonder about things, be inquisitive, ask questions. Um, I think that's probably the most important skill because in my profession, it's about solving problems and facilitating change. And you don't have the ability to do that unless you have that, that kind of, um, uh, that learned behavior of, of being Curious, and I think some of it's a little bit ingrained, um, but I think it's it could also, it's also pretty much a learned behavior. So that's professionally that's very important. I think to be, and I was um, in business, and I was an entrepreneur. I, I started my company, started other companies. Um, I I think that um, you have to be uh, self-driven. <clears throat> you have to be. Um, uh, have creativity, um, not satisfied with the status quo, and that kind of gets back to my career as well. It's all about, uh, you know, taking organizations um, and, and making change, making positive change, because if, if you sell for the status quo, any organization that just does the same thing doesn't adapt to the changing needs of the marketplace and the environment you are going to be out of business, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think those things are, um, those things are important in my career and also as a business person and have you ever been a part of any hiring processes oh yeah with your, so is that you you look for those things and oh yeah so so in in my firm and now you know in in university i'm a big fan and big proponent of behavioral interviewing you know i i think that you know an interview is an assessment tool to assess candidacy and you know one of the tenants is that the um 
best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And so in order to understand past behavior, I use behavioral interviewing. And behavioral interviewing is the framework. It's you, you determine a set of competencies behavioral competencies that are required for a certain position and so based on those competencies so if a a competency is uh, teamwork or playing well with others right behavioral interviewing you try to uh, it's it's called a stars model you you try to get someone to talk about a hey tell me about a particular situation where you had to work in a team or you had to put a team together what was that situation like a in the stars model what were the actions that you took R.S., what were the results? What were the outcomes? Um, and so, uh, yeah, so a big proponent of using behavioral interviewing and, and really understanding for the particular position what are the competencies required to be successful in that position. As someone who's very busy, I would imagine that your time is, obviously time is very valuable. And so what is kind of structuring your day look like? Do you have people that help you out with that kind of thing? Yeah. And you have sort of schedule, but can you sort of walk me through like a day in the life of, of you? Yeah, I have a, I have a, a schedule. One of my assistants, her primary uh, role is to schedule, which is very complicated, as you can imagine. Um, every minute of every day is orchestrated. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it has to. And, and so um, and scheduling has also been very important part of, I think, my life. And I think I can attribute some of the successes I've had because I've been able to um, really manage and optimize my time well. So um, scheduling is very important. But the other thing is <clears throat> what I what I look at, um, <clears throat> I have, you know, meetings during the day and then also things I have to get done. Mm-hmm. I am a big believer that if you have things you have to get done during the day, you have to schedule them into your day. So I used to do I used to do to-do lists, but I also schedule those in my calendar. And I'm very disciplined. I don't finish the day until I get through the calendar. And also, I may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, so I just I just follow the the uh, calendar and go from thing to thing, right. and I and I get things done. Then the other thing I do that I think is pretty important um, before. I go to bed at night, I take a look at my calendar, and I mentally go go through the whole day. And I did this, and I learned this technique um, when I was in school, and I was an athlete. I was an athlete, um, competitive all through high school and college. Mm -hmm. And I used to think, okay, if I have a a wrestling match the next day or a track meet or whatever, I I would think about it, and I would... Think about, you know, who I was wrestling and, you know, and what I was going to do. And then what happens, and the same thing with my schedule. I'd look at my schedule for the next day, kind of go through the day. And then what happens when you're sleeping, your brain is going through those scenarios subconsciously. So whether it's a wrestling match you're preparing, I'm preparing for, or it's my next day, which is, you know, I may have 12 activities in a day, your brain is going through that at night if you think about it and you go through that before you go to bed and um and then when you wake up the next morning you're into it it's it seems eerily like well I've, i feel like i've done this before 
I feel like I've been here before, right? And that's because you've you've mentally kind of gone through the iterations and gone through the logistics in your mind. And so I think you're um, it, it sets you up to be successful, whether it's that wrestling match, whether it's track meet, or whether it's all the things you have to accomplish that day. So I do that, which I think has been, um, you know, really important. The other thing I do at the end of a week, I, I'm very disciplined about this. I look at my entire week and I look at how I spent my time and I look at how I, how I allocated my time and I try to determine, did the Pareto principle work in my favor or work against me? The Pareto principle, the 80, 20 rule, right? Did I spend 80% of my time on the things that are important that are helping me achieve my goals, or do I spend 80% of my time on those things that aren't that important? They're not going to give me a lot of traction on getting my goals accomplished. So I, I evaluate what I've done the previous week, and I try to make adjustments. And I try not to get caught up in spending my time unproductively. I think time is, is the most precious asset that we all have. It's limited, and we never know when the clock's going to run out, right? Yeah. And I, so, you know, in, in life, you want to get as much done as you possibly can. I agree. Um, I, I think that that's all I've always thanked people for giving me their time, you know, because I think it is. Like, it is the most valuable thing that people have. Um, I have a question for you. After a certain point in the day, and again, this might be a personality difference. I'm not sure what this is, but... I know that if I look at my schedule, if I look at anything sort of work related after a certain point in time, I just overstress myself. My brain just gets stressed. So have you ever experienced that? Like just looking over the schedule of a really busy day, you know, do you still find that the benefits are outweighing the, the potential stress? Yeah, I mean, there are certain things, you know, in, in life and our jobs. I mean, there are certain things you like to do and certain things you don't like to do, right? Mm-hmm. And... I've kind of, you know, those certain things that I didn't like to do, I have, um, uh, I've tried to modify, modify my behaviors, modify my attitudes toward those things to really appreciate the need to do those things. And so when I, when I look at a, a busy day, um, and when I, when I go through that exercise of, you know, looking at my calendar before I go to bed, I'm like chomping at the bit when I get up and I, I can't wait to start. And that's, you know, the best advice I think I can give anyone is find a career, find a profession that you're passionate about mm. because there's nothing better in life. I have been so fortunate. I've been so blessed throughout my whole career. I have had jobs <clears throat> where I could not wait to get up in the morning and go to work. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that can happen, and I've had iterations, you know, throughout my career where I, you know, I didn't really like what I was doing, I didn't like the type of project or whatever, but there's nothing worse that you dread going to work. I've had the opportunity where I could not wait to get up and go to work. And and I, I advise people when they're trying to, you know, look for their career, you change careers several times over here, find something you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. You'll figure out the money later on. The money will come. But find something you're passionate about. Because, again, life is too short. And if you're doing something you love, you're passionate about, about you're going to do well at it. And, and you're going to be uh, rewarded and recognized for that. All right, let's shift our focus to Point Park now for a bit here. 
Uh, what are some of the unique challenges that Point Park has that may not be existing at other universities that you've had to contend with? Yep. So I think Point Park, you know, one of the challenges is just the nature of the sector that we're in in higher education, right? We're a mid-sized university in the Northeast uh, part of the United States. And so there is a uh, demographic challenge, right? There are less and less people, uh, traditional aid students available in the marketplace in the Northeast to go to school. So that's a uh, pressure on our entire seg- on our entire segment. Um, uh, I, I think, um, you know, the other challenge is you couple that with uh, that, you know, the entire world was thrown into this pandemic mm-hmm. and now transitioning from that pandemic. So just about every institution not only had the challenge of the demographic challenge, but also the, the loss of enrollment because of the pandemic. Right. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> two big things are happening there simultaneously. So those are the things facing Point Park. But we are doing things, you know, uh, one of the things that I was fortunate coming into this, and I was on the board before taking this role, we had started when I was on the board a strategic planning process for the university. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as I became president, uh, picked it up, and then we finished that process. Um, You know, the, the point in time where we're going through that strategic planning process could not be better because of this this point of transition and so that that strategic planning process was um, very robust in stakeholder engagement so one of the things that I think are critically important when you're working on a major initiative like a strategic plan and I've uh, and I've I beat this into the heads of my graduate students that I have this little equation that the effectiveness of any initiative, so the effectiveness of a strategic plan, for example, is the product of two variables, quality times acceptance. Mm-hmm. So my little equation, I sub E equals QA, the effectiveness of any initiative is a product of quality times acceptance. The quality part is the relatively easy part. It's all the experience, expertise, do we have the resources, do we have the data, right? I mean, that's that's solving a rational problem. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's multiplied by acceptance. You want to try to optimize both variables. And acceptance is buy-in. You know, do the people buy into it? Do the people going to be executing this thing on the lines? You know, are, are, do they buy into this? Because you can have a bunch of brainiacs at Point Park working on our strategic plan on a scale of 0 to 10. Well, let's give it a 10 because we, we've thought through everything. But if people don't buy into it, if the faculty don't buy into it, students don't buy into it, the board funders don't buy into it and you get a low number or you get a zero 10 times zero equals zero this year right? right so you need to try to optimize both of those variables and i think the other thing about about the importance of robust stakeholder engagement there's this concept in the education literature called hermeneutics mm-hmm. and hermeneutics kind of speaks to this this concept that oftentimes process that you use to get to some outcome is sometimes and oftentimes more valuable or just as valuable as the end product. Mm-hmm. So the fact that, you're, that the process that you deploy, so we had a process over a year long process for our strategic plan, that process in itself creates tremendous value, mm-hmm. right? And that, that equation, I sub equals QA, 
that forces you to think about, okay, what stakeholders do we need to engage to try to optimize the Q and the A? Okay, what stakeholders do we need to engage to make sure that we have the highest Q possible, the best quality possible, right? We need, we need, we need expertise from, you know, all these different constituencies. We need experience. We need resources to do this thing. But then it also forces you to think, okay, what stakeholders do we need that we need to gain their acceptance so we can execute this thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and quickly, who's a stakeholder? A stakeholder is anyone who could be impacted positively, negatively, um, you know, a, a, a key constituent, um, someone that that we need to have some engagement where they can they can add some value to the Q or add some value to the A. So in the university strategic planning process, that's the students, faculty, staff, the leadership, the, you know, the administration, board of trustees, um, members of the community, you know, uh, corporate community, foundation community, government officials. So those are alumni. So those are all key stakeholders that we engaged as part of our strategic planning process for the university. And I want to get to more of the 2030 plan uh, in a bit, but I, I want to go back to uh, just the, the ins and outs of running a university. What's the... Uh, what is the what's what's it like striking a balance of the fact that in some respects uh, it's a business you're you're working with money coming in and yep. you're having to pay people so balancing that with also being an institution of higher education how do you balance that yeah i i i, I it's an important balance um you know at my level, um, you have to be focused on the, the business. You have to be focused on the enterprise. And we have, you know, we have payroll to meet, right? We have cash flow to meet. We have, uh, you know, long-term initiatives. You know, I need to be thinking about not just tomorrow, but I need to be thinking about, okay, what's our play 10 years from now, 20 years from now? So there's those whole business challenges of running, and it's a very, very complex enterprise. I'd say higher education is much more complex than um, you know, a lot of the organizations I've worked with in the private sector because it's a highly regulated environment. You're, you're running a business, you're running a not-for-profit corporation, but then you also have this, this, this other intrinsic that this is all about higher education. This is all about, this is all about learning. This is all about the, the transfer of knowledge. This is all about the, uh, you know, freedom of thought, freedom of expression. And so those higher value things. And so, which, you know, so you're, you're running a business, but you're also trying to, um, you know, elevate, and this is all to hopefully enhance and create a better society. So you're doing these altruistic things as well, which is a very important part of it. And then it's, it's the, uh, you know, the, the relationship building at, at my level, it's with, you know, with the students. And so I need to be visible and be out with the students and go to student events and understand what the students need, um, understand their perspectives. And the same thing with the faculty and staff and with the alumni. And then with the greater community, I, I spend time with, with corporate leaders, with government, with government leaders, um, particularly with how we are situated in downtown Pittsburgh, where I think we're the largest or second largest property owner in 
in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, and we are a major driver. We're a major force. And as, as you know, as part of our strategic plan, we feel that we can be the catalyst, that this university can be the catalyst of Renaissance Three in Pittsburgh and the Pittsburgh region. Can you now give the listeners of this program a breakdown of, you know, what is the 2030 plan and why do you think we need it? Sure. So let me just talk planning in general. There is so much uh, scientific literature in the value of planning. Organizations that plan versus those that don't plan outperform uh, those that don't on just about every meaningful measure of, of performance. Every, and the same thing with individuals as well. Um, so there's a lot of value in, in, in planning. It's very, very important. Um, with, with our strategic plan, you know, we, we set some stakes in the ground, some foundational things that, you know, we have a, we have a mission, we have a vision, we have, we have values. Our mission, our purpose is we're all about inspiring imagination and creativity through experiential learning. That's our differentiator. That's what we do differently. And that's what we think we do better than, than a lot of institutions. It's all about inspiring imagination, creativity through experiential learning, all to, to better, to enhance society. That's what our, that's what our purpose is. And that's the why question. That's why that answers the question of why we exist. Why Point Park? Our vision is we want to be one of the most dynamic urban universities in America. That's what we're striving to, to, to be. And, and, you, and you can kind of see what that looks like. You can smell what that looks like. That's, that's what we want to be. That's the North Star. And what so, does that look like when you say dynamic? Um, what metrics are you looking at? So uh, we're, we're looking at a, a robust, diverse student body with a lot of activity, people living on this, you know, sustainable living on our downtown campus, engaged with the community. Our students, you know, remember our, our mission, we're grounded in experiential learning. Our students are engaged in all the, the corporations, the nonprofits, the governments in this community, that the university is providing value back to our community, it's this, it's this really rich, robust, symbiotic uh, relationship. That's it with, with culture, which, we're, which you know, we, we, we're a major leader, major provider of, of culture here, um, recreational activities, um, athletic opportunities, that that's a robust, dynamic urban university. And that's what we're trying to achieve. We're, we're getting there, we're pretty close. So that's our North Star. And then how we're going to pull that off, how we're going to how we're going to pull off and satisfy that mission and achieve that vision is through six areas of focus, six strategic initiatives. Three of those areas of focus, we call them drivers. They're driving us boom, boom, boom forward. And three of them are enablers. So those drivers are around the excellence of our academic programs. That's one. The student experience taking that to a whole nother level is two. And then the third is this area of community engagement, how we have the opportunity to be the catalyst of Renaissance three in Pittsburgh and the Pittsburgh region, how we're going to add value back to the community. Those are the three areas of focus that are drivers that are going to enable us to, to fulfill that mission and achieve that vision. And then the three enablers, the three areas of focus, you're going to enable us to do that. One is growth. 
we have to grow enrollment for for two reasons because we know we have a product that's in demand we know that we have you know some of the some of the best assets some of the best academic programs that there's a demand in this country and also in this world for these for these programs so we're going to grow the other reason is the, the reason for growth is you know in addition there's demand for it we have something people want is it makes good business sense it gives us sustainable revenue and cash flow to be able to make investments and grow and get better so growth is one the second is advancement you know, we need to do a better job of promoting and advancing what we do. Um, we need to develop a culture of philanthropy. We're a relatively young university, founded in 1933, became a junior college in 1960, a four-year college in, in um, was it, 660, uh, I forget my years now, 64, 68, and then a uh, university in 2003 relatively young so you know we don't have you know uh, endowments you know billion dollar endowments so we're going to grow and create this culture of philanthropy right and then the the third enabler is around our capacity so you know we're kidding ourselves if we're going to do these incredible things with our with our academic programming and the student experience and community engagement if we cannot attract and retain the best talent possible we're kidding ourselves. We have to have the capacity, the ability to attract and retain high-quality talent. We have to have outstanding infrastructure. Uh, we have to have the best technology that we can afford, and we also have to have the best facilities that we can afford to pull that off. So that's that ca capacity enabler. So it's those six areas of focus are going to enable us to pull this off. And so now we have a we have a course, we we have a plan, we have a blueprint over the next you know five to seven years of how we're going to prioritize the things that we do and execute on the things that we do in order to pull that off. When you talk about increasing enrollment, how many how many students are you talking about adding? So we're going to start by, um, you know, uh, we're going to start with some of our strengths, and we know that um, it's going to be difficult if we're all fishing out of the same local pond, you know, the same region. That's the number of fish are declining. That's not a smart move. So we're going to use the prominence of, of one of our strengths, our conservatory, our performing arts, and we're creating synergies among our other five schools. And so we're using that, that, that face of the conservatory, that very prominence, you know, it's, it's a high brand recognition, major player, waiting list to get in, right? And we're facing other markets in the nation that are not suffering the same traditional age student demographic loss right that areas that do not have uh, that lack an opportunity to attend a dynamic urban university and we're coupling you know relationships between that conservatory and some of our other programs to kind of raise the other boats and bring profile to the entire university with the lead of the conservatory so that's that's one of the things that we're doing and so we're looking at growing the conservatory right off the get-go 
uh, 30% increase. And so there's some areas of the, uh, the, the conservatory where, you know, um, we're, we're so well known for dance. It's, it's phenomenal. So we're going to grow in some of those areas. But there's also areas in the conservatory where we have tremendous capacity and room to grow, like in cinema arts. And we know there's a huge demand for that. So, so what do we need to do? What do we need to tweak in terms of technology, you know, augmenting our, our faculty to be, you know, to be major players in some of these other areas? And, and so, and then, you know, relationships with the other schools. I mean, we have an outstanding sports arts and entertainment management program, which is a natural synergy with that, with that conservatory, right? We have, you know, in arts and sciences, we have phenomenal civil mechanical electrical engineering we just created a minor in, in entertainment engineering or theatrical engineering that's a neat niche that is. that's that's you know that that you know now we have a hook to this world-class conservatory and so those are the ways we're going to we're going to raise the prominence and then there are schools like our school of education i mean that school is quickly becoming a major major player in the commonwealth of pennsylvania and we are certifying more principals and more superintendents in the commonwealth of pennsylvania than any school in pennsylvania by a magnitude of almost 2.5 and that includes the public institutions as well we are a major player. You look at all the the new docs out there, and particularly in the K to twelve space, they're they're from Point Park University. Um, we're becoming quickly. We are a major player in the state, and we're quickly now getting some national prominence. And so, so that's how we're going to start to grow. Plus, you know, we are doing things differently. And when I came in, I, you know, we made some changes um, on how we do things. Um, you know, you can't expect you do the same thing over and over again and get a different result, right? Mm-hmm. That's isn't that the definition of in, insanity, right? Yeah, something and, like that. Yeah. So, so you know, we're doing things differently, and so far, the early lead indicators, we're having impact. We are getting different results, so it's it's pretty exciting, pretty exciting. And so, uh, just some just some details on that. Where are these? So you're bringing in, you're increasing COPA by thirty percent. Uh, what's the year goal to hit that? We're, we're going to start 30% incoming classes each year. And so over a three, four year period, that's going to compound, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, so you're shooting for a 30% increase next year. On, on the next class, yes. Coming okay. into that conservatory and then spilling into some of the other schools. So, yes. Conservatory is. Uh, a couple it's it's six seven hundred students probably total over 900 around 900 900, i think something like that yeah so so the incoming class we're looking at increasing that by 30 percent and so that's going to you know compound obviously over four years plus the spillover effect of the other programs plus what we haven't done before we are doing program specific marketing you know, we're 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 specifically marketing some of these programs that we've never done before. Oh, I know, right? And we're I, seeing we are seeing results. We are seeing different results. Yeah, I was on the front of the there you go. podcast ads. All right, <laughs> my face all over LinkedIn. Yeah, you know, you know, we have an opportunity to to really put a stake in the ground is we're, we're going to run the game in arts, entertainment, entertainment, technology, and media. Here, here's the opportunity of being the downtown university. It's, it's, it's my belief. It's, it's several of ours belief that, you know, in the post pandemic world, unfortunately, the office workers aren't going to come back in droves. We're, we're, we're seeing that, right? 
I believe that downtowns are going to transition and become centers of arts and entertainment and recreation. Mm -hmm. And guess what the coincidence is? That's Those are that's what we do. That's what we're that's what we're strong in, right? Yeah. And and even if if you look at all the other schools, we all have compliments. We can all support that. Mm. You, you need business people to pull that off, right? right. You, you need people in the arts and sciences to pull that off. You need creative people to pull that off. And so, so, the, you know, that's that's our positioning. Mm. That 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 we as the downtown university with our with our assets and our strengths. We are perfectly positioned mm -hmm. to be the catalyst of transforming a major metropolitan area, a major urban center. And I think we can be the model for the world of what we're able to pull off here in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Now, um, this is a rumor. This is a rumor that I heard uh, on this show and, and from other places, too. And I don't I don't. So I'm just asking you this. I was told that that the, the COPA increase is going to happen. Uh, I, I heard that there was not a plan to hire any new faculty. Oh, we've already been hiring faculty. Already been hiring yeah, faculty. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. I was, yeah. That sounded crazy. I had to yeah. lay that to rest. Okay. Yeah. And also in some other areas as well. I, we've, we've been hiring. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Are, are there currently any plans to address the, uh, the student uh, food concerns on campus? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think a lot of these, at least this is what I've learned coming in. I think a lot of these concerns were concerns years ago that keep, re <laughs> keep resurfacing, you know, from years ago. And my understanding is, you know, they have been, they have been addressed. I eat in the dining halls. Yeah. Uh, several meals, uh, you know, several meals a week. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I mean, I, I find the food great. I, I think, you know, I've eaten a lot of, um, you know, dining halls, you know, institutional food, health. I did a lot of health care in higher ed uh, my, throughout my career. And I think we have one of the best, um, <laughs> the, the best food services, best dining facilities out there. We made we made improvements to the dining facility you know, over this this past summer, but I think the food is um, I find it to be very very good and good variety. And we're constantly getting feedback from students and trying to make improvements. Now, you know it's 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 chicken and egg thing too. You need to have demand. So you know we're trying to 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 draw more traffic into the dining hall because the more volume we have coming in the dining hall is more revenue, which gives you more opportunity to increase hours, more opportunity to provide more value. If you have low volume, it's, it's a business, you know, you just can't, yeah. you can't afford to do it. So, so we're trying to create more value, but we're also trying to enhance quality. So, so the market is attracted to the, uh, you know, to the product. And so, you know, we're, we're constantly looking at things, but I, you know, I, I see some of these things that keep popping up and, and I'm told, yeah, this, this was from four years ago and it just keeps, or six years ago and it just keeps resurfacing as a like problem. A, oh, I, I've, I've certain, like a, certain complaints okay. about, yeah. Gotcha. And, and it's, and I find out, Oh no! This isn't recent. This was this actually happened in, in here, you know, uh, President Brasales. Here, here's the documentation. Here's this photo. This was seven years right. ago, and it just keeps. Well, well I bring it up because the yeah. Globe reported moldy food last semester, and that was from that was from uh, a long time ago. That, really, that particular photo. Yes. Okay. That's that what was that's what was the documentation that was presented to me. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, if more people get in there and if the hours can increase, that would be because the hours are. Well, you need demand. You need. I mean, you need to have. You need to have people come in. But you know, we're always looking for. um, We're always looking for feedback, ways to improve. Um, You know, it's it's. We're we're here because of the students. Mm. We are here. This is why we exist as a university, as an administration, to serve the students, and to provide the best academic programs and academic experience possible, and the best student experience possible. Because there are other choices out there. There are other alternatives. Mm-hmm. We, we want to be one of the best. And so we're always looking for feedback on what we can do better. And we're sincere about that. And when we get, when we get feedback, believe me, we listen. Mm-hmm. And we, we scrutinize, we analyze, and we take action. We always do. Mm. we got to wrap up here in a few minutes. So I want to get you some, uh, some, uh, some closing questions here. Uh, This is a question that I I like to ask everyone that comes on the show. Uh, What does it mean to be an American to you? What does it mean to be an American? Um, That's a good question. I I think um, an appreciation and a love of the freedoms that we have in this country, I think that's that's a big part of it. Um, We're very fortunate, not, you know... A lot of places in the world do not have those freedoms and those those individual those individual rights. I think that's a huge part of it, um, and pride of what we stand for. That this you know this this concept of freedom and liberty and what we stand for not only ourselves but as a beacon of hope for the rest of the world. What is your favorite part of your job? Favorite part of my job is um, is working with students. Favorite part of my job is when I go to events and when I have time in between meetings. And when I have, if I have five minutes between meetings, I'm on campus. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gra- going to Point Perk and getting uh, my glass of iced tea and just giving me an opportunity to, to bump in and talk to students. That is the best part of my day, for sure. What advice do you have for young people that want to get into positions of leadership or higher education? I think that, you know, going to college, you know, having an opportunity to go to school to continue your education is an outstanding opportunity to get involved and develop your leadership skills. The, the reason that I am in this role today and the reason that I have had successes throughout my career, I can 100% attribute it to the opportunities I had to get involved in extracurricular activities in college. I was involved in high school, but it was was really those opportunities I had when I was in college gave me the opportunity to develop as a leader. You know, I was, I was an, I was an athlete. I was a, I was a student leader. I was a chairman of our council student leaders. I was, uh, I was a resident advisor, resident director. I was a, um, uh, I was, I was an athlete, uh, uh, leader in, in my teams, and I was in a fraternity. And those experiences gave me an opportunity to how to, you know, how to work with other people, you know, how to play well with others, how to be a good leader, be a good follower, and gave me opportunities to to make incredible mistakes, crash and burn mistakes, right, where that you learn from and opportunities to give me some successes that gave me the confidence 
to do those things when my when my tail was on the line professionally, right? And my, my livelihood was on the line. I had the confidence and I had the experience to make some tough decisions only because I had the opportunity to learn and, ha- and gain the confidence from when I was in college and had these opportunities and these extracurricular activities. I think getting involved in extracurricular activities is so critically important. Just in my in my opinion, just as important as the uh, uh, as fulfilling the academic mission. Mm-hmm. And um, you you are you are married. You do you have kids? Yes. Uh, so yeah. Another one I like to ask uh, uh, men that come on the show is who are who are fathers is that what have what has that taught you, being a dad? Oh my gosh, uh, <laughs> um, it, it, it's it's taught me to. Um, stop and smell the roses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was a, an older dad, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, being an older dad, man, it's, it's you know, being older, I, I was kind of through the rat race and, and focused on myself and building my career. But man, I appreciate, I stop and smell the, smell the roses and I appreciate the heck out of my kids and what they're doing. And, uh, you know, there's an advantage to being older with that. Now, the disadvantage, I may never uh, be, uh, see, see my grandchildren. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that is. A- right? That's a, that's a little bit of a trade-off. But, um, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's taught me the importance, of, the importance of being a good role model for my kids. Um, that I have to, I seriously have to walk the talk uh, 24/7 because they're always looking at you, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's 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 really taught me how to be patient. I think there's an advantage of being an older father. Um, you know, yeah, you're a little more seasoned, a little more laid back, and a little more patient. But uh, there's there's um, there's nothing greater. It's a blessing. Mm-hmm. And I have them all over. I have a 22-year-old who's just finishing up graduate school, who's actually one of my grad students last semester oh, really? at Carnegie Mellon, so that That's was cool. cool. And then I have a uh, uh, 10-year-old daughter, 8-year-old son, and 6-year-old daughter. So they're going to wow. keep me young. They are. They are. <laughs> uh, what gives you hope for the future? I, I, I look at our students at Point Park, and I'm just blown away at the uh, – uh, the talent, um, you know, the dedication, the passion that they have, and the uh, uh, the intelligence that they have, and uh, that they really care, and that gives me so much hope about the future. Gives me so much hope because I'm I'm in the fourth quarter, right? <laughs> right. I'm in the fourth quarter. Oh, no, so you got a little, uh, you got more time. Yeah, I have a little more time. Hopefully, all, hopefully it's early fourth quarter. Well, I'm in the fourth quarter. The, the friend of the show, I have a friend at Pet uh, Jeremiah Cartwright says we're all going to live to be 200. I'm like, I don't know. Um, but, <laughs> I don't know if I want to go that long, but yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what I told him. I was like, I'm good. I'm good with 95 or something. Uh, 